Chapter One of The Last Secrets by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Lhasa. Till the summer of 1904, if one had been asked what was the most mysterious spot on the Earth's surface, the reply would have been Lhasa. It was a place on which no Englishman had cast an eye for a hundred years and no white man for more than half a century. In our prosaic modern world there remained one city among the clouds about which no tale was too strange for belief. The greatest of the mountain barriers shut it off from the south, and on the north it was guarded by leagues of waterless desert. Explorer after explorer had set out on the quest, but all had stopped short before the golden roofs of the sacred city could be seen from any hilltop. Even in the early days, the place had never been explored, for the visitors had been jealously watched and hurried quickly away. In the Potala might be treasures of a culture long hidden to the world, lost treatises of Aristotle, unknown Greek poems, relics, perhaps, of the mystic kingdom of Kublai Khan, riches of gold and jewels drawn from the four corners of Asia. And then... Suddenly, in 1904, we went there, not as apologetic travelers taken by side paths, but as an armed force marching along the highway to the very heart of the mystery, and letting loose at once upon the world a flood of accurate knowledge. For a moment, we were carried centuries away from high politics and every modern invention, and were back in the great ages of discovery. With the Portuguese in their quest for Ophir or Prester John, or with Raleigh looking for Manoa the Golden. It was impossible for the least sentimental to avoid a certain regret for the drawing back of that curtain which had meant so much to the imagination of mankind. The shrinkage of the world goes on so fast, our horizon grows so painfully clear, that the old untiring wonder which cast its glamour over the ways of our predecessors is vanishing from the lives of their descendants with the unveiling of lhasa fell the last stronghold of the older romance tibet had always been a forbidden land and as a rule adventurers only penetrated its fringes somewhere about the year thirteen twenty eight a certain friar Odoric of Portinon, traveling from Cathay, is said to have entered Lhasa. And in the middle of the 16th century, for now Mendez Pinto may have reached it. In 1661, the Jesuits Gruber and D'Orville made a journey from Peking to Lhasa, and thence by way of Nepal into India. In the early part of the 18th century, there was a temporary unveiling, and a Capuchin mission was established in the Holy City. Various Jesuits also reached the place, notably one Desideri. And in 1730 came Samuel Vanderpoot, a doctor of laws of Leiden, who stayed long enough to learn the language. In 1745, the Capuchin mission came to an end, and the curtain descended. In 1774, George Bogle of the East India Company was in Tibet on a mission from Warren Hastings, but the first Englishman did not reach Lhasa till 1811, when Thomas Manning of Caius College, Cambridge, a friend of Charles Lamb, 
arrived and stayed for five months on his unsuccessful journey from calcutta to peking till nineteen o four manning was the solitary englishman who was known for certain to have entered the sacred city though there was a tale of one william warcroft reaching the place in eighteen twenty six and living there for twelve years in disguise in eighteen forty four the french missionaries hook and gabet reached lhasa from china and recorded their experiences in one of the most delightful of all books of travel they were the last europeans to have the privilege up to the entry of the british army but throughout the last half of the nineteenth century indian natives in the government service were employed in the survey of tibet men of the type of babu whom mr kipling has described in kim the whole business was kept strictly secret the agents were known only by the letters of the alphabet and when they crossed the tibetan borders they were aware that they had passed beyond the protection of the british raj more than one reached lhasa by fantastic routes with the result that the indian government had accurate information about the city filed in its archives while the world at large knew the place only from the history of Gebe and from the drawing of the potala made by gruber in the seventeenth century of the later european travelers none reached the capital mr littledale in eighteen ninety five was not stopped by the tibetan authorities till he was within fifty miles of the city and sven heden in nineteen o one got within fourteen days of lhasa from the north but meantime events were happening which were to impel the government of india to interfere more actively in tibetan policy than by merely sending native agents to collect news the traditional policy was to preserve tibet as a sanctuary but a sanctuary is only a sanctuary if all the neighbors combine to hold it inviolate in nineteen o three the position of britain and tibet was like that of a big boy at school who is tormented by an impertinent youngster he bears it for some time but at last is compelled to administer chastisement the convention of eighteen ninety and the trade regulations of eighteen ninety three were outraged by the tibetans in many of their provisions our letters of protest were returned unopened and since news travels fast upon the frontier our protected peoples began to wonder what made the British Raj so tolerant of ill-treatment. This was bad enough for our prestige in the East, but the danger became acute when we discovered that the Dalai Lama was in treaty with Russia, and that an avowed Russian agent, one Dorjieff, was in residence at his court. The two powers in Lhasa were the Dalai Lama, who speedily fell under Russian influence, and the Tsongdu, or council, composed of representatives of the great priestly caste, who suspected all innovations, and were in favor of maintaining the traditional policy of exclusion against Russia and Britain alike. China, though the nominal suzerain, was impotent, her viceroy, the Amban, being partially insulted by both parties. In these circumstances, Britain could only make her arrangements by going direct to headquarters. Dorjieff had played his cards with great skill and seemed to be winning everywhere. The Dalai Lama was wholly with him and had received from the Tsar a complete set of vestments of a bishop of the Greek church. The Russian monarch was recognized as a bodhisattva incarnation, 
representing no less a person than Tsong Kappa, the Luther of Lamaism. And Russia was popularly believed to be a Buddhist power, or at any rate the sworn protector of the Buddhist faith. It is difficult to overestimate the significance of these doings. But at the same time, Russian influence was rather potential than actual. The Cossacks who accompanied Sven Hedden were headed off from the holy city as vigorously as any English explorer, and the tales of arming with Russian rifles which filtered through to India were rather intelligent anticipations than records of facts. There were thus two parties in Tibet pulling against each other, but both in different ways hostile to our interests. The Dalai Lama and Dorjiev favored a departure from the traditional Tibetan policy in favor of Russia. The Songdu and the Lamaist hierarchy in general were all for exclusion, but in their willfulness declined to observe treaties or behave with neighborly honesty. This internal strife, which alone made possible the success of our expedition, also made its dispatch inevitable, for neither party was prepared to listen to any argument but force. Few enterprises have ever been undertaken by Britain more unwillingly, and her decision was only arrived at under the compulsion of stark necessity. There were many who reprobated what they assumed to be a violation of the sacred places of an ancient, pure, and pacific religion, but there was no need for compunction on that score, since Lamaism was the grossest perversion of Buddhism in all Asia. Spiritually, it had more kinship with the aboriginal devil-worship of Tibet than with the gentle greed of Gautama. Practically, it was a political tyranny of monks, who battened upon a mild and industrious population and ruled them with coarse theological terrors. Our reception by the monasteries was sufficiently gruff, but to the common people we came rather in the guise of friends. In July 1903, Colonel Younghusband, as he was then, Mr. White and Captain O'Connor went to the Kambajong, a place in southern Tibet, just north of Sikkim. There they met the abbot of Tashil Hunpo and certain emissaries from Lhasa, but nothing could be done. And with the concurrence of the Indian office, it was arranged that a mission should go to Giangtze, the chief town of southern Tibet, accompanied by a small escorting force. While troops were being collected, the commissioner, Colonel Younghusband, went to Tuna on the bleak plain above the Tang La where he waited through three weary winter months. Meanwhile, General MacDonald, a soldier who had had a distinguished record in Central Africa, took up his quarters at Chumbai, while Major Betherton, the chief transport and supply officer, accumulated stores in that valley and prepared the line of communications. Those were anxious months of waiting for the mission, for the Tibetans were in force in the neighborhood and daily threatened to attack the small post. But nothing happened till the escort joined them in the end of March, 1904, and all things were ready for the advance. It is worthwhile looking back upon the road to Tuna from the plains of Bengal, surely one of the most wonderful of the great north roads of the world. At Siliguri, the little toy railway to Darjeeling runs up the hillside. But the path for the troops lay along the gorge of the Tista River, 
through forests of sal and gurgeon, which give place in turn to teak and bamboo, till the altitude increases and the tree fern and rhododendron take their places, and at last the pines are reached and the fringe of the snows is near. From the glorious subtropical vegetation of Gangtok, the capital of Sikkim, the road runs through difficult ravines till it passes the tree line at Legyap and climbs over the frozen summit of the Natula. From this point, Tibet is visible, with the majestic snows of Chumulhari hanging like a cloud in the north. Then you descend to the Chumbai Valley, the debatable land of Tibet, where stands Ta Karpo, the great white rock, which recalls a famous passage in the Odyssey. Right under Chumulhari and just south of the Tangla lies Farijong, the first of the minor Tibetan fortalices, which looks as if it were a bad copy of some European model. A little farther, and you are over the pass, and on the great plateau of Tuna, where icy winds blow from the hills and drive the gritty soil in blizzards about the traveler. There are few places in the world where in so short a time so complete a climatic and scenic change can be experienced. On the 31st of March, the expedition left Tuna, and, after an unfortunate encounter with the Tibetans, which cost the latter many lives, and in which Mr. Edmund Candler, the distinguished war correspondent, was wounded, the enemy made a further stand at Red Idol Gorge. Nothing of importance, however, occurred till the town of Gyangsi was reached and occupied without a shot. Very soon it became apparent that no more could be done here than at Kambajong, and the government of India were obliged to sanction a farther advance to Lhasa. For this, preparations must be made. So the commissioner, with a small escort, took up his quarters at Gyangtze, while General MacDonald returned to Chumbai for reinforcements. The Jong was found to be deserted, but unfortunately was neither held nor destroyed, the mission residing in the plain below. At first, the waiting among those iris-clad meadows was pleasant and idyllic enough. The country people brought abundant supplies, and members of the staff rode through the neighborhood and had tea with various dignitaries of the church. But early in May, things took a turn for the worse. It was reported that the Tibetans were fortifying the Kerala, the next pass on the Lhasa Road, and since it is the first principle of frontier warfare to strike quickly, Colonel Brander was dispatched with a larger part of the garrison to disperse them. He performed the task with conspicuous success, and the incident is remarkable for one of the strangest pieces of fighting in our military history. It was necessary to enfilade a sangar in which the enemy was ensconced, and a native officer, Wasawa Singh, with twelve Gurkhas, was detached for the work. They climbed up by means of cracks and chimneys up a 1,500-foot cliff, an exploit which would have done credit to any alpine club, even if the climbers had not been cumbered with weapons exposed to fire and laboring at a height of nearly 19,000 feet. During the engagement, disquieting news arrived from Gyangtze that the Jong had been reoccupied by the enemy and that the mission was undergoing a continuous bombardment. Colonel Brander hurried back to find that the world had moved fast in his absence and that there was a new type of Tibetan army to be faced, 
a type possessed of both dash and persistence with some notion of strategy and with guns which at short range could do real execution so began the blockade of the mission house an imperfect blockade for the telegraph wires remained intact the mail was delivered with fair regularity and the besieged endured no special privations the honors said mr percival landon were pretty evenly divided neither tibetans nor we were able to storm the other's defences a mutual fusillade compelled each side to protect its occupants by an elaborate system of traverses and straying beyond the narrow tracks of the fortifications was on either side severely discouraged by the other an attempt to cut our communications failed and by the capture of pala the garrison greatly strengthened its position our troops had an experience of the type of fighting which has scarcely been known since the great sackings of the thirty years war in an upland country we expect attacks on fortified hilltops and long-range encounters such as we saw in south africa but in an episode like the capture of naini it was medieval street fighting that we had to face the castle of otranto provided no more endless labyrinths than those of tibetan monasteries bands of desperate swordsmen were found in knots under trap-doors and behind sharp turnings they would not surrender and had to be killed by rifle-shots fired at a distance of a few feet on the twenty sixth june general macdonald arrived with a relieving force and soon after came the tongs of penlop the temporal ruler of bhutan a genial potentate in rich varicolored robes and a homburg hat the tibetan offensive had weakened but the jong had to be taken before the mission could advance down the middle of the precipitous southeastern face of the great rock ran a deep fissure across which walls had been built it was decided to breach these walls by our gunfire and then to attack by way of the cleft the actual assault was a brilliant and intrepid exploit for which lieutenant grant of the eighth gurkhas most deservedly received the victoria cross with our guns battering the walls above he and his men scrambled up the ravine while masses of rubble poured down on them and every now and then carried off a man then the Gurkha's bugles warned the guns to cease, and the last climb began up a face so steep that there was no possible shelter from the enemy's fire. By such desperate mountaineering, the invaders at last reached the wreckage of the Tibetan Wall. Grant and one of the Gurkhas were the first two men over, and to the observers below their deaths seemed a certainty. They were two against the whole enemy force in the Jong, and had the tibetans reserved their fire and waited at the bastions they could have picked off every man of the assault as his head appeared above the breach but the bold course proved the wise one and presently the garrison surrendered rarely has the victoria cross been better earned and it is satisfactory to know that lieutenant grant reaped the reward of perfect fearlessness and received only a slight wound on the fourteenth of july the expedition moved out from Giangsi along the road to lhasa grass and a glory of flowers covered the glens which led up to the kerala the serious fighting was over and the second crossing of that pass was remarkable only for the fact that some rock platforms and caves had to be cleared by our panting troops 
at an altitude of over 19,000 feet. In the rest of the story, the soldier finds little place, and the interest attaches itself to the durbars of the commissioner and the treasure house of natural and artistic wonders which the mission was approaching. For after Gyangsi, the resistance of the Tibetans was at an end. Half sullenly and half curiously, they permitted our advance, delaying us a little with fruitless negotiations, while in Lhasa the game of high politics which the Dalai Lama had played was turning against him, and like another deity, he was meditating a pilgrimage. After the Kerala came the Yam Dak, or as some call it, the Yutso, or Turquoise Lake, the most wonderful natural feature of the plateau. Its curious shape, its pale blue waters, its shores of white sand fringed with dog roses and forget-me-nots, the cloud of fable which has always brooded over it, and its august environment make it unique among the lakes of the world. I quote a fragment of Mr. Landon's description. Quote, Below lie both the outer and the inner lakes, this following with the counter-indentations in the in-and-out windings of the other shoreline. The mass and color of the purple distance is Scotland at her best, Scotland, too, in the slow drift of a slant-roofed rain-cloud in among the hills. At one's feet the water is like that of the Lake of Geneva. But the tattered outline of the beach, with its projecting lines of needle-rocks, its wide, white, curving sand-spits, its jagged islets, its precipitous spurs, and, above all, the mysterious tarns strung one beyond another into the heart of the hills, all these are the Yamdok's own and not another's. If you are lucky, you may see the snowy slopes of Tonang guarded by the waters, and always on the horizon are the everlasting ice fields of the Himalayas, bitterly ringing with argent and sun and color of the still blue lake. You will not ask for the added glories of a Tibetan sunset, the gray spin and scatter of a rain-threaded afterglow, or the tangled sweep of a thundercloud's edge against the blue will give you all you wish, and you will have had seen the finest view in all this strange land. End quote. On the shore lies the convent of Samding, the home of the Dorji Phagmo, or pig goddess, which was jealously respected by the troops, since its abbess had nursed Chandra Das, one of the adventurous agents of the Indian government, when he fell sick during his travels. The present incarnation, a little girl of six, declined to reveal herself. Nothing was more satisfactory in the whole tale of the expedition than the way in which any service done at any time to a British subject, white or black, met with full recognition. Such conduct cannot have failed to have raised the prestige of the power which showed itself so mindful of its servants. Prestige and reputation of a kind, indeed, we already possessed. The Tibetan monasteries had a trick of sending their most valuable longings to the nearest convent, for, they argued, the English do not enter nunneries or war with women. On July 24th, the expedition crossed the Kumbala and descended to the broad green valley of the Tsangpo. The crossing of that river, a work of real difficulty, was made tragic by the death of Major Betherton, the brilliant transport officer, to whom, perhaps more than to any other soldier, the military success in the enterprise was due. 
not the least of the mysteries of tibet was this secret stream which the traveller after miles of bleak upland finds flowing among english woods and meadows in Assam and bengal it was the brahmaputra but when it entered the hills it was as unknown to a civilized man as alf or the four rivers of eden what its middle course was like and how it broke through the mountain barrier were questions which no one had answered nor at the time was there any accurate knowledge of its upper valleys once on the north bank lhasa was but a short way off and in growing excitement the expedition covered the last stages it was one of the great moments of life and we can all understand and envy the final hurried miles till through the haze the eye caught the gleam of golden roofs and white terraces the first prospect brought no disappointment if the streets were squalid they were set in a green plain seamed with waters trees and gardens were everywhere while above the huge assisi-like citadel of the potala typified the massive secrecy of generations and the ring of dark hills reminded the onlooker that this garden ground was planted on the roof of the world meanwhile the expedition set itself down outside the gates to abide the pleasure of the sullen and perturbed masters the deity of the place had gone on a journey no one quite knew whither he had kept his moonlight flitting a secret and had gone off on the northern road with Dorjieff and a small escort to claim the hospitality of his spiritual brother of urga he had played his impossible game with spirit and subtlety and he had a pretty taste for romance in its ending when one looks for mystery in lhasa wrote mr candler one's thoughts dwell solely on the dalai lama and the potala i cannot help dwelling on the flight of the thirteenth incarnation it plunges us into medievalism to my mind there is no picture so engrossing in modern history as that exodus when the spiritual head of the buddhist church the temporal ruler of six millions stole out of his palace by night and was borne away in his palanquin the romance which mr candler saw in the potala mr langdon found most conspicuously in the church of the jokang the palace was magnificent from the outside but within it was only a warren of small rooms and broken stairways the great cathedral on the other hand was hidden away among the trees and streets so that its golden roof could only be seen from a distance but inside it was a shrine of all that was mysterious and splendid the contrast was allegorical of the difference between the temporal ruler of lamaism gaudy tyrannical and hollow and the sway of the buddhist church which by hidden ways and unseen agencies dominated the imagination of asia the chinese amban having a natural desire to pay back the people who had so grossly neglected him invited certain members of the mission to enter this holy of holies the visitors were the first white men to approach the inner sanctuary of the buddhist faith they were stoned on leaving the building but the sight was one worth risking much to see in the central shrine sat the great golden buddha roped with jewels crowned with turquoise and pearl surrounded by dim rough-hewn shapes which loomed out fitfully in the glare of the butter lamps while the maroon-clad monks droned their eternal chant before the silver altar 
and the statue was as strange as its environment. Quote, For this is no ordinary presentation of the master. The features are smooth and almost childish. Beautiful they are not, but there is no need of beauty here. There is no trace of that inscrutable smile which, from Mudkin to Salon, is inseparable from our conception of the features of the great teacher. Here there is nothing of the saddened smile of the melancholia, who has known too much and has renounced it all as vanity. Here, instead, is the quiet happiness and the quick capacity for pleasure of the boy who had never yet known either pain or disease or death. It is Gautama as a pure and eager prince, without any thought for the morrow or care for today. End quote. Mr. Landon has other pictures of almost equal charm. He takes us to the famous Ling Kor, the sacred road which encircled the town, worn with the feet of generations of men seeking salvation. We see the unclean abode of the Ragiabas, that strange, unholy caste of beggar scavengers. We walk in the gardens of the Lukang, by the willow-fringed lake and the glades of velvet turf. And not least, we visit the temple of the chief wizard, where every form of human torment is delicately portrayed in fresco and carving. But if we wish to realize the savagery at the heart of this proud theocracy, we must go with Mr. Candler to the neighboring Dipong Monastery on the quest for supplies and see the tribe of inquisitors buzzing out like angry wasps and submitting only when the guns were trained on them. For these weeks of waiting in Lhasa were an anxious time for all concerned. Our own position was precarious in the extreme, and had the Lhasans once realized it, impossible. Winter was approaching, the government was urging the mission to get its treaty and come home, and yet day after day had to pass without result, and the commissioner could only wait and oppose to the obstinacy of the monks a stronger and quieter determination. Sir Francis' young husband was indeed almost the only man in the empire fitted for the task. He sat through every Durbar, says Mr. Candler, a monument of patience and inflexibility, impassive as one of their own Buddhas. Priests and counselors found that appeals to his mercy were hopeless. He too had orders from his king to go to Lhasa. If he faltered, his life also was at stake. Decapitation would await him on his return. That was the impression he purposely gave them. It curtailed palaver. How, in the name of all their Buddhas, were they to stop such a man? At last, on 1st September, when after a month's diplomacy the Tibetans had only admitted two of our demands, the time came to deliver our ultimatum. The delegates were told that if all our terms were not accepted within a week, General MacDonald would consider the question of using stronger arguments. Our forbearance was justified by its results, for the opposition suddenly subsided and we gained what we asked without any coercion. It was a diplomatic triumph of a high order obtained in the face of difficulties which seemed to put diplomacy out of the question. The final scene came on 7th September, when in the audience chamber of the Potala the treaty was signed by the commissioner and by the acting regent who affixed the seal of the Dalai Lama, the four chapes, a representative of the Songdu, and the heads of the great monasteries. 
Thereafter came a limelight photograph of the gathering, and with this very modern climax, the great Asian mystery became a thing of the past. The Dalai Lama had already been formally deposed, his spiritual powers were transferred to our friend Atasha Lama, and with the treaty in our baggage and real prestige in our wake, we began the homeward march. What were the results of the expedition? Geographically, they appeared a little barren, for we stuck too close to the high road to solve many of the greater mysteries. One fact of cardinal importance was established. Our concept of Tibet was revolutionized, and instead of an arid plateau, we learned that about one-third of it was nearly as fertile and well-watered as Kashmir. For the rest, the two most interesting expeditions were forbidden, down into the Brahmaputra to Assam, and to the mountains nine days north of Lhasa, which had formed the southern limit of Sven Hayden's exploration. One valuable expedition was, however, undertaken. Western Tibet had hitherto been the best-known part of the tableland, and now our knowledge of it was linked on to the Lassen district. On 10th October, Captains Ryder, Rawling and Wood, and Lieutenant Bailey, with six Gurkhas, left Yangtze and made their way by Shigatse up to the Tsangpo. They explored the river to its source, and, passing the great Manasarawar lakes, arrived at Gartok on the upper Indus. Thence they entered the Sutledged Valley, and crossing the Shipki Pass of over 18,000 feet, reached Simla in the first week of January 1905. Much was added to our knowledge of the Himalaya. The fact was established that the old reports of northern rivals to Everest was unfounded, and moreover the highest mountains in the world was seen from the northern side, where the slopes are easier and the possibility of an attempt on it occurred to various minds, a hope which seventeen years later was realized. On the political side, the true achievement was not the formal treaty, but the going to Lhasa. We taught the Tibetans that their mysterious capital could not be shut against our troops, and that Russian promises were less real than British performances. We showed ourselves strong, and above all things humane, and we earned respect, and it would also appear, a kind of affection. When the venerable regent solemnly blessed the commissioner and General MacDonald for their clemency, and presented each with a golden image of the Buddha, an honor rarely granted to the faithful and never before to an unbeliever, he gave expression to the general feelings of the people. Tibet was enveloped once more in its old seclusion, a deeper seclusion indeed, since we guaranteed it. A final result was that we vindicated our claim to protect our subjects and those who served us. We took our Gurkhas into the forbidden land, which their native traditions had invested with a miraculous power, and showed them the truth. As for Bhutan, up to 1904, it was as obscure as Tibet, and its people were strangers. They were now, in the commissioner's phrase, our enthusiastic allies. Their ruler, in his Hamburg hat, joined us in the march, and acted as master of ceremonies in introducing us to the Lhasa notables. Nearly twenty years have passed, and much water has since run under the bridges. In 1906, 
China adhered to the treaty, and in 1907 came the Anglo-Russian Convention, which provided for the secluding of the country by both powers, and recognized China's suzerain rights. In 1909, the Dalai Lama, who had been restored, was ejected by Chinese troops, and in 1910 he was at Darjeeling, a refugee claiming our hospitality. Once again he was reinstated, and he has ever since been a faithful ally of Britain. At the outbreak of the Great War, he offered 1,000 Tibetan troops and informed the king that lamas through the length and breadth of Tibet were praying for the success of the British arms and for the happiness of the souls of the fallen. Since 1904, both China and Russia have crumbled into anarchy. There is no peril to India through the eastern Himalayan passes, and the strategic importance of Tibet has dwindled. It is still a forbidden country, but it is no longer a secret one. Posts run regularly to Lhasa, and a telegraph line has been laid to that mysterious capital. But it is mysterious only by a literary convention. The true mystery is gone. The secret, such as it was, has been revealed, and the human mind can no longer play with the unknown. Child Roland had reached the dark tower and found it not so marvelous after all. It is hard not to sympathize with Mr. Chandler's plaint. Quote, there are no more forbidden cities which men have not mapped and photographed. Our children will laugh at modern travelers' tales. They will have to turn again soon to Gulliver and Harun al-Rashid, and they will soon tire of these. For now that there are no real mysteries, no unknown land of dreams where there may still be genie and mahatmas and bottle imps, that kind of literature will be tolerated no longer. Children will be skeptical and matter-of-fact and disillusioned, and there will be no sale for fairy stories any more. But we ourselves are children. Why could we not have left at least one city out of bounds? These reflections do not detract from the romance of the expedition itself and the privilege of the fortunate men who shared in it. For them, it was assuredly a great adventure, one which could never be repeated. It may be summed up, as Mr. Landon has summed it up, in certain famous lines from the Odyssey, which have not only a curious local application, but embody the true spirit of adventure. Over the tides of ocean, on they pressed, on past the great white rock beside the stream, on till through God's high bastions east and west, they reached the plains with pale starred iris dressed, and found at last the folk of whom men dream. End of chapter 1